0: you wouldn't mind standing with me, please. We're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As we work our way through the New Testament, verse by verse. This is Saul being struck by light. Blinded by the light. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Who asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? (laughs) Hmm. Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you are here to teach us now this morning because we've gathered in your name. We thank you, Lord, that you bring peace to our hearts and minds and that you extend grace to every person here. We thank you, Lord, that you desire for us to grow in you. So teach us, make us more like you, so that when we leave this place, we'll be different than the way we came in. We ask that in Jesus' name and all of God's children agreed by saying... Amen. You may be seated, please. So more than 40 years ago, there was a song that was popular with that title, Blinded by the Light. Now, some of you are old enough to remember 1977, and that was the big hit for Manfred Mann. Some of you are old enough, but you can no longer remember 1977. (laughs) That's another problem. Actually, it was Bruce Springsteen who wrote the words of the song, and the words are uh, confusing at best. It's number 82 on the all-time rock and roll 500, most popular rock and roll songs of the time. See, that's why you came to church this morning, you need to know those kind of important things about our culture. Springsteen was trying to say something meaningful, I'm sure, Um, but one line from the song will give you the deep intellectual areas that it goes. Mama always told me not to look into the eye of the sun. But Mama, that's where it's fun. I know, I don't understand either. Nobody did that listened to it through the 70s, but most people didn't understand a lot of stuff in the 70s. We've come to the original. The uh, real deal. The true spiritual enlightenment, where the name would come from, blinded by the light. It is Saul who is having an encounter with the one whom he has been persecuting, trying to destroy the work of Jesus on the earth. Well, the most religious man, probably in the Bible, was completely blind spiritually which, which probably should help all of us that Saul was a rabbi he was a fundamentalist he was absolutely rabid about keeping the conservative view of scripture he was true to scripture but he was caught in a, a moment of time that was very difficult because there was a turning point there was a hinge point here in history where the old covenant has become obsolete. And suddenly the new covenant that God had spoken about in the prophet Jeremiah's writing, is well as, <clears throat> excuse me, Ezekiel. Had too much fun singing with you this morning. Blew my voice out again. I, it's left twice in the last 24 hours. That's okay. So Paul is uh, one who is at this, this fulcrum, this point in time, this crossroads, you could say, where the old covenant of many, many hundreds of rules and regulations of the law have suddenly become obsolete, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and there is a new covenant, and the new covenant is one designed by God, and it's something that he does in our lives. He is taking out our hearts of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, that he puts his Holy Spirit within us as believers. We become the resident of the Holy Spirit. And then he writes on our heart his law of love, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. That's a beautiful promise from God that when we surrender to Jesus Christ, he begins to change us from the inside out. And we actually find our want-tos changing because he's doing that work. So Saul is at that moment in time where that's happened. It it happened on the cross. Where in Colossians, Paul said those rules and regulations that were against us, that were nailed to the tree, they're nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus. And the old law passed away for the new covenant. But Saul is in the old covenant still, trying to push everybody back into the restraints of the law. 613 rules and regulations, the rabbi count. So many that no one could possibly keep them. That's the good news for us, that God changes us so that we find ourselves wanting to do the right thing. Saul is stuck there. But this conversion experience, probably the most important one, at least in the New Testament, would become our hope, your hope, and my hope. Because Saul would be so completely changed by his surrender, his questions really. He had asked God two questions, and those questions are the same ones that we need to ask. The first one is in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? (laughs) That's very profound. What Lord do you serve in your life? Because that's what he's asking God. He knew that the word, the title Lord, Master Ruler, was something that he needed to surrender to, submit to. He wanted to know who this was that was important enough, powerful enough to knock him off a horse flat on the ground on his way to Damascus. Second question, verse 6, Lord, what will you have me to do? What am I supposed to do with my life? Those are two questions that you and I both need to ask. Who are you, Lord? And what is it you want me to do with my life? So, Quick review of where we've come from in the book of Acts. First chapter, Jesus says, wait, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit's come. Chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Amazing revival. 3,000 people get saved when Peter preaches. A few days later, the next chapter, he preaches again on the the Temple Mount. 2,000 more people get saved the church is suddenly over 5,000 people. The first Christian church in Jerusalem. That's what we're studying here. That's what the book of Acts takes us from and all the way up to when the church gets so crowded there's some infighting going on. Huh. Infighting in a church? Who ever heard of that? The very first one started that way and there was this two groups of widows that were being taken care of by the church and there were Uh, Those who were of Hebrew extraction, Jewish, spoke Hebrew, who were Jews. And then there were those Jews who spoke Greek, the Grecian widows. And they were complaining, you're getting more than we are, blah, blah, blah. And so the church settled it by appointing seven men, seven deacons. And those seven deacons were waiting on tables, waiting on these elderly ladies in the fellowship. And they had to be at least 60 years old. And so it wasn't a a real glamorous job. They were serving. They were servants, which is exactly what Jesus said we are to be, serve one another. One of them turns out to be a a quite gifted teacher. And uh, his name is Stephen, the first of the seven. And, And he starts preaching on the side. And after hours, he'd go out and preach on the streets. And he was arrested for it because he was telling people they needed to follow Jesus, which was a capital offense, which was called blasphemy, so he's tried. We see in chapter 7, he goes before the Supreme Court of Israel, and he's found guilty, and he's sentenced to death, capital punishment. And while he is being killed, we're told that a young man named Saul from Tarsus, a Roman colony in what's modern-day Turkey, that he is condoning it. He's voted for it. He's there while they're killing this young man with stones. Stephen. And then in the next chapter, we see the a second of these deacons. His name's Philip. And he also decides he's supposed to go and preach to. So he goes to a very biased area that no Jew would want to go to, the area called the Samaritans. They were racially a mixed race, and the Jews kept away from them. And the Samaritans didn't feel any better about the Jews either. And so Philip says, well, nobody's preaching there. I'll go there. And he began to, and people began to get saved. A couple of the apostles went up, and they baptized the Samaritans. And God says to him, I want you to go on down to Gaza. <laughs> hmm, interesting. That would be in the news so much recently. And so he's on the road to Gaza. And he hears someone coming up behind him. And he turns around, there's a chariot coming with an entourage of officials from Ethiopia. And uh, in the lead of this chariot is uh, the treasurer of the country of Ethiopia. This black man is writing in style and he's heading back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem where he has evidently purchased a Bible or part of a Bible, the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it as he's going along. And in the first century, when you read, you read out loud even if you were by yourself. And so he's reading it and he passes Philip and Philip hears him reading the scriptures. And God says, okay, go run and catch him. <laughs> um, those horses are pretty fast, Lord. There's a hundred reasons why that's not a good idea. But Philip didn't complain. He just started running. And, and he runs up beside the chariot. He goes, what are you reading? And I said, well, uh, I'm reading this verse here. And he said, do you know what it means? He says, how will I know? Excuse me, he said, do you know what it means? He said, well, how will I know unless someone teaches me? Come on up. And he jumps up in the chariot and he begins to explain to him the verses that are describing from Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. What a coincidence at just the right time. He explains to him Jesus, the Messiah. And as they're riding along, they come to some water along this desert road. And the Ethiopian says, Well, what would prevent me from being baptized? Well, nothing, Philip said, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And so they baptize him. And so suddenly Philip is caught up. You have to go read it yourself. Just an amazing story. And he disappears from the scene, literally. Now we get to chapter 9. It's about time, Pastor. It's time to go home. We get to this moment where one of the men that was voting against the first deacon that was killed is this Saul. And Saul is from a long way away. So, Saul is uh, a story that every time I read it, reminds me of the grace of God. That's a word we use all the time. But uh, scripturally, from the biblical point of view, it's specifically attributed to God. Something that God gives to you and to every person in this room, every person within the sound of my voice. It is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor with God. Favor with the creator of the universe who desires to give good gifts to us His children. The story of Saul is the story of a man who is probably the most guilty man on the planet who is capturing men, women, and children and bringing them back to Israel where they were tried for blasphemy and they're stoned to death. He's a murderer at unbelievable levels. So if you think you're bad, take hope. Be encouraged. God is moving. So Paul is going to be so radically changed And he's going to be such a well-used man that he will change literally the course of human history because of this event, blinded by the light. Now, we might say, well, it's because he was just such a powerful personality. No, Paul says it's because of grace. In fact, this is the way he says it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He said but it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace, which, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, it wasn't wasted. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Did you get what he was saying? God gave me this grace. Don't give me credit for it. God give me this grace that, that in fact went inside me and began to change me. And I, I labored, it was work, it was hard, but it was because of what God put in me. I will cause you to walk in my ways. He knew his life was the result of God's grace working in him and through him. So there's three sections here, short part. Verse uh, one and two is attitude which stunk at first and then uh, his attention was changed verse three through seven. And then he was apprehended by God, captured by God. Let's jump in and see what God might say to you. Verse one, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So he's, it says literally that he's in the Greek he's breathing in and out murder. He's living in the atmosphere of it. His desire is to kill these people that were going against his view of religion. Oh, there's a lesson right there. Be careful about what you think about your own relationship, whether you understand the Bible or not. He lived in this climate of wanting to destroy people that were going against his favorite church. You might say, A.T. Robinson said, he's threatening and slaughtering. It has become the very breath that Saul breathed, like a warhorse who sniffs the smell of battle of the gunpowder in the air. So he's going against the disciples. He's sincere. Don't miss that. This guy really believed in what he was doing, but he was sincerely wrong. Oh, danger, danger, danger. But he goes to a high priest. Now we know who this high priest is because he's in chapter seven called Caiaphas. And he was the same one that Jesus went to his home and was tried there. But that name should sound familiar to you because we all live in the time where Caiaphas' tomb was found. What, 1990? This box, called the Oshuary, was discovered by accident in Jerusalem. And it has written on the end of it, Joseph Caiaphas, high priest. I wonder whose that is. (laughs) And uh, the archaeologists that found it brought in uh, anthropologists, and, and those little boxes were part of the burial traditions of the Jews. When you died, they would put you in a limestone cave, and the limestone would, shall I say, enhance the decay of your body. And then, after all, those parts are gone, and we only have the hard parts, the bones, they're put in the box. It's the inside uh, length is exactly the length of a man's longest bone, which is the thigh bone. And so he's packaged up in that, and he's put in at, at 60 years old, according to the anthropologists that studied the skeleton, He's a 60-year-old man when he dies, and he's tucked in there at the end of the first century, and he wasn't found until 1990. So you can go to, you should go to Israel sometime in your life. Not this week, but sometime. And uh, go to the museum, the Shrine of the Book, and walk up to this box, because there it is. You can walk within three feet of it, of a man living that you and I are reading about right now. So Saul goes to Caiaphas, and uh, it is a, a fascinating thought to trace the archeology. span This happened in the last 50 or 60 years that we found this box with this name on it. We found the stone in Tel Dan with King David's name on it. We, we found the stone in Caesarea by the sea that had Pontius Pilate, the prefect, on it. Tangible things you can go up and touch today. So God is slowly, and that's why I know we're heading towards the end times, because he's revealing more and more physical proofs of the Bible. You can trust this book, the historicity of it. It is, in fact, accurate. So... Um, Though the archeologists will rule about it, they'll complain about it. Um, it is in fact there and uh, to deal with. So uh, high priest, uh, the remains of him, and he is the one who Saul approaches, verse two. And he asked letters from him to the synagogue, letters of recommendation, we might call them today, in Damascus, the next country over. So that he'll be found only when he found any who were in the way, excuse me, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Damascus, of course, is still a city today. It is uh, a main street down this, guys, main street down the center of it. Um, That's what it looked like in 1900. And that uh, main main street, you could say, is called the straightway. And uh, and this is where we'll read next week, where Paul ends up along this this uh, seat. It is a uh, that's 1900s, the same street. And Damascus is considered by the UN to be the oldest continually occupied city in the world. Uh, that's a Roman arch from the second century. Right, and that's Straight Street again. And uh, this is it. One of the that's the Grand Bazaar that it goes through. and All the foundations for some of the most fragrant perfume in the world are for sale there. So I always mention that for the ladies, that's the ultimate shopping place. And this is the wall of Damascus that we'll read uh, two weeks from now where Paul is let down over the wall, the traditional spot. And that's again the late 1800s. So Damascus is uh, about 140 miles north from Jerusalem. I think significantly it's in another country. And God is sending Saul, although he doesn't know it at this time, to a different nation, to Syria. And uh, and, and that's to uh, open up Paul to traveling into the world. Because follow with me, Saul, or Paul, is going to take the gospel throughout the entire Mediterranean area. It's called the Levant. Uh, all of Asia Minor, all of what's modern day Turkey, all the way up into modern day Russia, uh, the Ukraine, all the way down into uh, uh, Croatia. Today, Dal- Dalmatia in those days, and of course, Greece and Italy. And, uh, and it will open up Western Europe to the gospel. And most of us in this room can thank Paul, the apostle, for doing that. So God is opening the door in his mind to go to other nations. So uh, he's there in Damascus to capture people who are in this cult, in his mind, the way, W-A-Y. Now don't misunderstand, that's not the cult today. We have an American cult called the way. And please, I'm not talking about a church in San Bernardino <laughs> that's called The Way. Uh, in, in fact, they're probably more accurate than we are in a name, um, because here it is called The Way. And, uh, and then when he, he would capture them and then shackle them and take them back to Jerusalem for a trial so they could be found guilty of blasphemy. He'd feel good about himself. He's helping God. Uh-oh. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. On his way to Syria, just outside of Damascus, tradition says that suddenly this light came. God often appears in light. In uh, Revelation 22, it says there's no need for a sun in heaven because God himself is the source of light. Now, the light which flashed around Saul was brighter than the sun. And uh, Paul would write about it years later. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For it is the God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light is always in scripture a symbol of truth. Moral purity. This, the symbol of guidance, revelation, light itself is essential for life, L I F E. We all are tied into plants that are all driven by uh, chloropaths and sunlight that hit upon it, and, and at least uh, we feed animals and eat them if you're into in and out. Second Corinthians 4 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine. So it was a pillar of light that went with the children of Israel as they went across the Sinai Peninsula. It was a brilliant light that appeared in the skies of Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born. It was another flash of light that the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. So God is bringing light. And it's significant for this man. We have a a picture here of God displaying himself. How did Saul respond? Verse four, he fell to the ground, (coughs) heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Light so strong that it was knocked him down. Charles Spurgeon said, the English pastor, that uh, Paul was a great man. And I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But it takes only a few seconds to radically change the man, how quickly God brought him down to the ground. And God does that in all of our lives because conversion requires humility. It requires us to deal with our shortcomings. Yes, we, we all have certain talents and capabilities, our assets but we also all have liabilities. We all have different difficulties. God is God, we're his creation, we're just a piece of clay, we're called jars of clay. The best place to be is where you understand that you are a needy person, need of help for God. And you usually find that when you're face down in life, I've noticed. Second Peter, and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why persecute me, Jesus? And now we naturally think that Saul has been persecuting these people, not Jesus. But Jesus had said in Matthew 25, 40, And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. He was speaking to his disciples, you and I, about the way we treat other believers. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We notice that the first words that Jesus speaks to Saul is really a question, why? Why? Why, so, In the Garden of Eden, the first thing that God said to Adam was a question. Adam, where are you? You're gonna hide from me? Really, I created this whole place. God is still asking people that same question today. Where are you? If, if Adam had thought through that question, he probably would have found his way back onto a, a road of relationship with God you can't find and know the way back until you first know where you are where are you where are you in life that's a good question for us to ask each other what are you doing why are you persecuting me saw this the question to him but to you and I What's behind it? What are your priorities? What is it that you're doing with your life? What are your reasons for doing what you're doing? What do you hope to accomplish? Whew, powerful questions. What is this that is driving you like this? Why are you persecuting me, God says. We we notice that God calls this name twice, Saul. Saul. We notice that God has done that several times in scripture. He said, Martha, Martha, why are you always so busy waiting on tables and things? Your sister's praying here in front of me. Even to the city of Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. And how often it would have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks. Yet Jesus could be mad. He's not, at Saul, nor is he mad at you. And he said, who are you? Natural question. But the word he uses at the end of that question, (laughs) who are you, Lord? You get the idea Saul might have figured it must be somebody who could be my lord and master, someone strong enough, capable enough to knock me off a horse. It's still an important question. It's an important question for Saul. It's an important question for you. Who are you? Who is the Lord? Who's the master? Who's the ruler of your life? Are you kicking against the, the goads, it says here? Uh, the word in the Greek is kidron, and it means uh, an iron spike at the tip of it. And it was used in animal husbandry. None of us have probably ever plowed anything besides our garden with one of those little push ones. But when you have an animal like an oxen or a horse and they're harnessed and they're pulling the plow, and when they get to a difficult part or they're just cantankerous, they stop, then you would have this long pole with a sharp end on it and you stick them right behind the hoof and a horse will pick up his foot and move it forward. And uh, I don't know about oxen. So I've never tried to plow with them. And I haven't, haven't tried to plow with a horse because my wife's horses are not the kind you would plow with. And I'm in trouble for even mentioning horse and plow in the same sentence. So I'm going to bury myself here. So conviction, Saul is under conviction. He knows somebody powerful has knocked him down. He, he might, he's suspicious that it might be God. And God knows how to get our attention, doesn't he? <laughs> it, most of us came in a, a car with a gas gauge. Some of you have EVs that don't have any. But uh, for most of us, at least we're familiar with the device, right? It tells you when you're running low. Now, I can ignore the gas gauge on my vehicle, and I don't like it when it goes down because my, my wallet starts to ache. And, uh, but eventually, if you don't pay heed to it, then you have to walk. So that's what's going on here that uh, Saul is beginning to see. I'm going against something here that's not working out very good. God knows how to get our attention. This is the voice. This voice is the voice of a hunter. It's the voice of a creator in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and he spoke and light was there. It's fascinating to me. Uh, it may be the Big Bang. It may be singularity where everything's reduced down to a tiny dot about the size of a, a period, but even smaller. And then suddenly explodes and goes out into stellar space. And the heat from that is still going out called background, background radiation, cosmic Radiation. But it was from a voice. Who? <laughs> the same voice who spoke the world into existence. The same voice that called Adam from the garden. The same voice that spoke in judgment, uh, spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai and gave him the law. The same voice that spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus left a grave that he'd been in for several days. The same voice that the widow of name's son heard during the funeral possession, Jesus touched it and and this young man sat up. The same voice that cried out, it is finished from the cross to Telestai. The same voice cries out to you and to me today. He says, follow, follow me. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul must have just about spit his teeth out. I am the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am who is the I am. I always have been, I always will be, I am now. And Saul's thinking, uh, what? I, I, I would have swore you just said Jesus <laughs> because that's who he was persecuting. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Good question, great question. Lord, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? This is called your creed or credo in Latin. Uh, Literally in Latin, it's I believe. What's your creed? Only you know that. What is it that you believe in? And there's been a lot of poetry and a lot of songs I believe in the son, well, it's hard to ignore. (laughs) What about God? I believe. What do you want me to do? That's an important question. If you get the first question right, Lord, who are you? Then what do you want me to do becomes important. There's an old British hymn that I was reading and thinking about maybe teaching it to the church And it's talking about God pursuing people. Probably many of you in this room right now. There blew a horn in Bethlehem. Christ sat on Mary's knee. And oh, she said, my child, she said, they blow that horn for thee. For thou shall hunt. Interesting. Jesus, you will hunt the heart of man. Thy prey. P-R-E-Y. Till the last thy little hand shall close upon his soul. God is wanting to pursue you and me. Probably the reason why you're here this morning. The men who journeyed with him, verse 7, were speechless, heard a voice, but saw no one. They couldn't distinguish any words It says in Acts 22. The same story is repeated three times in the book of Acts. And uh, in one of the other places, Acts 22, verse 9, it says that they couldn't actually distinguish the words. It was like booming bass or something like that. And then, verse 8, Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw, (laughs) he saw no one. Or literally, it says in the Greek, he could see nothing. If you've ever been around a welder particularly you know, an arc welder you're not supposed to look at it because it can in fact burn your eyes he couldn't see anything he couldn't even see any of the men that were traveling with him now he has to be led Acts 22:11. but he said but when I could not see for the glory the brightness of that light being led by the hand of them who were with me I came into Damascus like a child led by the hand and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now that's drink, he probably that was his own choice. But he was an overload. You might say he just needed some time to decompress. He needed to get his thoughts together. What in the world happened here? But it's interesting to me it was three days because Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. Jesus spent three days in the grave before he came out. Now Saul, three days in blindness. Some people change their ways when they see the light. Some of us change our ways when we feel the heat. Well, stubbornness. There's an old poem called The Hound of Heaven written by Francis Thompson. He writes, I fled him. I'm running from God, he said. I ran from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth waves of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter. So, he's running from God. But scripture is filled with people who have done that probably some of you here this morning are doing that right now Moses was a murderer God's grace chased him down all the way over in the Sinai Peninsula while he was tending sheep after he had killed someone at 40 years old now he's 80 and God calls him don't tell me you're too old to be used by the Lord Moses gets started at 80 Samson sinned over and over again against God. Yet he killed more of his enemies in his death than he ever did in life. God chased him down and won him at the end. Abraham lied a couple times about his wife being his sister and yet God would make him the father of the nation. Jacob, a deceiver, his name means that. Yet the Lord transformed him and used him. Simon Peter preached the greatest message and had his greatest ministry after he had denied Jesus three times. Your past condition is no obstacle to God. Your present circumstances are no obstacle to God. I'm gonna close with a uh, a little story, excerpt out of Philip Yancey's book What's so amazing about grace, since we're talking about grace? He tells the story of a prodigal daughter uh, who was a friend of his family who grew up in Traverse City, Michigan. Disgusted with her old-fashioned parents who overreacted to her nose ring and the music that she listened to and the length of her skirt, she runs away. She ends up in Detroit where she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, recognizes that since she's underage, men would pay a premium for her. She goes to work for him. Things are good for a while. Life is good, but she becomes sick for a few days and it amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean before she knows it she's out on the street without a penny to her name she still turns a couple of tricks a night but all that money goes to support her drug habit one night while sleeping on the metal steam grates in the city she began to feel less like a woman of the world and more like a little girl she begins to whimper God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do now. She knows that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. So three straight calls home. She gets three straight connections with the answering machine. Finally, she leaves a message. She said, Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home I'm catching a bus trip up your way and will be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll understand. During the seven hour bus ride home, she prepared a little speech for her dad. And when the bus came to a stop in Traverse City, the station, the driver announced A 15 minute stop. And she thought, 50 minutes to decide my whole life. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. But not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she actually sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, great-aunts and uncles and cousins, and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that says, welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad She stares out through tears quivering in her eyes and begins her memorized speech. He interrupts her. Hush, child, he said. We don't have any time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late. There's a big party waiting for you at home. Would you stand please and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are our Father and you are waiting patiently for us to come home. Thank you, Lord, that you do that constantly for all of us who know you. But we know, Lord, that there are some people here who are struggling with that idea of forgiveness, receiving it as well as giving it. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to them right now and show them their need and give them the grace to surrender to you. Christians, please pray. So I wonder if there's somebody here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you've been here before, but through this service, it struck you that you're not walking with God. You know that, I don't have to tell you. This moment is for you. If you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'll just acknowledge your hand. God bless you. Two of you in the back. You in the very, very back on the aisle. God bless you. Young man, yes, God bless you. Yes, and you too. God bless you. Anyone over here God is speaking to? All right. If I missed your hand, don't worry, God didn't. Those of you who raised your hands, would you please pray out loud with the rest of us? We're going to do it with you to make it easy. So everybody, please say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you. From this day forward, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.